Good morning. Great to see everyone. This morning for our sermon, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, we're going to be reading verses 22 through 30. And it'll be up on the screen, but it also might be helpful for you to have it open in front of you. I'm really resisting the urge to preach the entire chapter um, because hopefully we'll, we'll see a little bit of this as we go, but really the entire chapter brings out uh, what Jesus uh, wants us to hear and understand in our small section. And so we're going to resist, but we will make um, some references to other parts of Luke chapter 13. But for our reading, we have Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. It should be on page 873 of the church Bible. So Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 22. He, this is Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we seek to listen to this word. Heavenly Father, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us? For your son's sake, would you lead us on the path of your truth? For there is life and abundant joy. Amen. Well, you know the saying, I'm sure, and so the few, the proud, the Marines, thank you, some of you know it, the few, the proud, the Marines. And it's an appropriate saying, I'm sure, that whenever you have met someone who's a soldier, we do feel proud. They have dedicated themselves to train and to commit and to be ready to sacrifice for others. And in a way, the fewer, the more proud. And so those who have trained more, served longer, sacrificed the most. In that way, we do want the few. We want the few because they're able and willing to do the things that the many could not, even so that the many don't have to. But what if we applied that saying to Christianity? How would you feel about the few, the proud, the Christians? Well, sometimes it might seem like the Christians are the few and the proud, and so we have expressions like the holy huddle, and so it has this idea of kind of being huddled together proud to be on the inside and all too ready to treat everyone else as the outsider. And so that type of attitude, it can look like entitlement. Of course, there are few because only a few of us are really ready to take this seriously. 
Well, I hope we can avoid that type of thinking. We don't want to be the few and the proud in that way. But even so, I think we probably still struggle to know how to feel about the experience of the Christian life where it does seem, at times, to be few. And so this has been a question in my mind recently. Um, You may be aware, but there's been a lot of uh, chatter, a lot of books and articles, conferences, really dealing with the the practical issue of the Western church, um, processing what it would look like to be Christians in an increasingly post-Christian world. And so the general idea is that the church might have looked more successful or more influential in the past, maybe in good ways or bad. But increasingly, the church might look smaller, weaker, with more suffering and maybe less influence. And so how should we feel about that? And this type of question, of course, is very personal for me. I'm a church planner, and so I know the work is going to be slow and challenging, but what should I expect? Should I expect success? Or will those who are saved in Norwalk be few? I imagine you struggle with the same questions that It might seem as though your friends and your neighbors don't seem to be becoming Christians, and maybe they're not even that interested. And to cut more close to home, especially maybe during the holiday season, maybe you carry a lot of sadness and concern for loved ones who have drifted away from Christ or just haven't moved closer, maybe despite many years of prayer. And so will those who are saved from your family and from your your communities be few? And I think even for the non-Christian, this is a a question they can relate to, because in many ways, on the outside looking in, if you would look at Christianity, you might wonder, what's the big deal? It seems small, insignificant, just one of many ways to find kind of grounding and purpose for your life. And maybe it seems like Christians even like it that way, to be a click, closed. If you put all this together, I think we can basically identify two ways to process the question of the few. Is it okay that there are few? Should we be proud or ashamed? Or should there be more than a few? Should there be many? And should we be expectant or disappointed? You see, I think it's a really big and important question in terms of how we relate to Jesus and what God's doing in his plan of salvation. And so isn't it great that this morning we get this exact question posed directly to Jesus? Jesus, what is the truth? How successful will salvation be? Will those who are saved be few or many? And as you may know, this idea of questions and answers with Jesus is actually a great way to get to know him and really a great way for us to understand what he's all about. But Q&A time with Jesus can also be pretty surprising both in the answers he gives and in how he turns a question around. Really, he switches spots, where it becomes not so much him answering us, but us answering him. And I think that's what we have going on this morning, what we're hopefully going to experience. You see, we have this question, where the, will there be few who are saved? It may not be a bad question, but as we'll see, it's not really the question Jesus wants to answer. And I hope we'll see that how he answers it is actually for the best, both for, the, both for this first century audience and for us. Because more than understanding the success of salvation, Jesus wants us to understand the substance. I think what he might say is that asking the question probably says more about us and how we think about salvation than it says about God and his generosity in salvation. 
And so one pastor, he said it this way, that Jesus, he moves us from speculative and theoretical to personal and practical. See, often it's a question of speculation and theoretical, and Jesus moves us to very personal and practical. You see, from Jesus' answer, it seems as though to get bogged down with this question, it could be a symptom of a deeper issue where this questioner thought it was an easy assumption that he was in, that it was an easy thing for him to be saved, and so perhaps an easy expectation for many others to be saved. And so is it the few and the proud or the few and the disappointed? Well, we're going to try to allow Jesus to answer and realize he doesn't really answer the question, but our hope is that as we listen to him, he will actually answer what we need. So we're going to be working through this passage, uh, three headings. So salvation is hard, salvation is possible, and salvation is surprising. And so first, salvation is hard. And so our story, it picks up in verse 22 there. We join Jesus as he is teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And if you know anything about Jesus' life and especially his death, you know that this is a key bit of context here, that Jerusalem is the climax of Jesus' ministry, the high point and in some ways the low point, because it is the climax of the crowd's expectation of Jesus and the place of his death. And so in light of this kind of building intensity in both in terms of Jesus' approach to ministry and the crowd's expectation of Jesus, we have the key question in verse 23. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, we don't know exactly why this person was asking the question or how they were feeling about the dilemma. Maybe they were proud to be part of the few, or maybe they were expecting more and feeling a little disappointed. But what we do know, and this is what we'll see from Jesus' answer, is that while they were worried about the success of Jesus' mission, they were dangerously close to missing the substance. You see, they asked how many, and Jesus answered, how hard? Let's look down again, verse 23, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And so if we spend a moment trying to connect the dots between the question and Jesus' answer, what I think we find is that the question was concerned about who else might be saved. The someone asking the question thought it was an easy assumption that they at least were in. So they asked if there would be few, and Jesus answered, strive to enter. The implied danger is that they may not make it. Salvation is hard. Don't take it for granted. And so really, I think three reasons we can see here why salvation is, is hard. One is that everyone needs it. Salvation is hard because everyone needs it. You see, the question about whether few will be saved, Jesus, he flips the perspective to the many who need to be saved. And so it's a very basic kind of parable that Jesus uses here. Um, he describes salvation as the picture of entering in a house. And so in verse 24, we have the narrow door. In verse 25, it adds that the door is the entryway to the master's house. And so a basic picture, pretty simple. It's God's house, not ours. So we're on the outside. Even if we might be described as neighbors, it's still not our house. And so who's on the outside? Everyone. The perspective is that because of sin, no one has the demand on the life with God. 
Salvation with God, it's a big task, a hard thing, because naturally everyone would be the outside looking in. And so here's an illustration of that, death. All right, getting serious here. It's actually the illustration that Jesus uses himself. And so if you just look back at the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus really is setting up this discussion of, of who's in or who's not and this idea of what's needed at the beginning of the chapter. And so Luke 13, we're going to read verses 1 through 5, and really this is an illustration of who needs to be saved. And so there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's a really helpful, short, and pointed exchange. You notice we have two tragedies. One you might describe as, as natural, and so a natural disaster of sorts, and then one more human, and so a tragedy where, with human cause. And the question, the apparent question is, why do bad things happen? That is a common question. Their assumption, it seems, is that they must have been worse sinners. It's kind of the reverse of our common assumption that no one really deserves to suffer, but it deals with the same problem. But Jesus says no. Our place, it's not our place to connect particular suffering with particular sin. Wrong question. But once again, Jesus, he switches the question and he turns it on us. Instead of worrying about this particularly tragic event, we all have to worry about the impending tragedy of death. Even if it's quiet and in our beds after a long life. You see, for Jesus, tragedy and suffering, it does point to the bigger issue that death is coming for us all. Who needs to be saved? Everyone. You see, death and how to handle it is one of the biggest questions of life. And whether someone finds the answer in Christianity or somewhere else, the answer will drastically affect their life. And so let's take a moment to remember that Jesus' view of death, that death is the result of sin, and so not the way it's supposed to be. And so if you remember sin, if we were meant to be in relationship with God, close to him as the source of our life, Sin would be the idea of turning away from him and going our own way, separated from life. And so Jesus says this tragedy, these people, they weren't necessarily worse sinners, but they, like us, were living in a world full of sin and needing saving. And so Jesus says, look at death and you'll realize you're all in the mess together. And so he says, what's the solution? You need to repent. It's that idea of turning back. Everyone would face this way. Everyone would need to turn back. And so salvation, it's hard because everyone needs it. Like death, no matter how good we think we are, there's no escaping it. But Jesus goes on. This is kind of the basic understanding, but he goes on to add a, another danger, that salvation is hard because so many fail to prioritize it, that we're slow to turn back. And so back to our story, Jesus, he imagines a day when everyone realizes that they want to be saved. They all want to go to the master's house but it'll be too late. And so what happened? Well, whether they already assumed they were in or they assumed that they would be let in, the problem is the same, that they didn't strive to enter through the narrow door. 
Now, Jesus, he's not teaching uh, works righteousness here as if only you could try hard enough, you could earn your way in, but he is warning against entitlement, this idea of taking salvation for granted. And so when you hear strive, you really want to think of the idea of agonize, agonize. And so think of the picture of, uh, of having a ticket for a great concert. Okay, so you have the ticket to the Taylor Swift concert, and it's about to start. If you have the ticket, you're not thinking, I'll just get there when I get there. I'm sure T-Swift will wait. No, you and everyone else in that crowd, there is an urgency to press in, to get in. With that concert, everyone is striving to enter. It's a mass of people pushing through that small security gate. That's the picture here. It's not an issue of works, but of awareness of desire. It's not a question of the few, but rather the many who would fail to enter. And so Jesus, he describes many who overlooked the narrow door for a while, but then eventually decide it was time. Look down again, verse 24. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And so what was the issue here? Well, people on the one hand, they thought they had plenty of time. There was plenty of time. Always something else taking priority. You got to get through college, got the kids, you got to get them grown up, get the career done right, get settled. Always time. And they also thought that since they were around the master in the same neighborhood even, of course they would be let in. You see, salvation, it's hard because the danger of taking it for granted, it's there for the insider and the outsider. And so maybe the guy who's asking the question, maybe he's assuming he's already in, so no need to strive. It's an easy thing to be saved. Or maybe for this crowd that Jesus turns to, maybe they think they're close enough, so no need to change or to repent. And as we hear those things, I think we can start to see those things around us and probably even in us. Aren't these the confusions and the common in our lives? Assume you're already in a good person. I think I've shared this before, the three classic ways we convince ourselves we're a good person. Do some of the good, don't do the really bad, be better than most. With that calculus, you can all be pretty good. Or we assume we're in because we're a religious person. We're doing the right things. I think in our world, it's probably even more common that we would assume we're in because we're close enough. Maybe not a Christian, but certainly neighbors with God, right next door. And so sometimes it's just living in God's world that we would assume, of course, he'd let us in. Or we think that we can find our own way. We're all going to the same place. Or best of all, we're living around the church. So we might not take it that seriously, but we're showing up. You see how hard salvation is. Everyone needs it, but the many don't prioritize it. And salvation is hard because there's only one way in. See, Jesus, he doesn't sugarcoat it. Salvation is hard because there's only one way in. Close enough isn't enough. You see, the master, he does have a door, but there's only one, and it's described as narrow. Only one because there aren't many ways in. And so this isn't an all roads lead to Rome type of idea where you enter God's kingdom whatever way you can. And it's narrow, probably not meant to describe a limited flow. 
as if only two or three could come in at once, a slow trickle. But rather, rather it's probably limited accessibility. And so the door is not wide, as if there's a lot of flexibility in the way you get in. Not plenty of room to rush in. It's not salvation. It's not something that's going to happen. Just go with the flow, carried along by the mass. No, he says it's one door and it's narrow. Think about how we use uh, GPS. So just yesterday, I was talking to my brother, who's coming up to visit for Thanksgiving, and he was asking me, what's the best way to go? He's coming from Maryland, and so he's coming up here. You've got to go through Philadelphia and New York. And so he's asking me, what's the best way to go? And of course, what do I tell him? I just check the GPS, right? I just check the GPS, and whatever way it tells me, that's the way I go. You know, for many people, that's the way they're treating life with God. That my life, whatever the way it goes, it'll take me to the right place. But Jesus says, no, no, there is only one way. And it's a narrow way. It's actually very limited in the sense of how you get in. And so I think we need to be careful that perhaps the question of will there be few or many, it could point to an undervaluing of salvation as if it were an easy thing. And so we start off with hopefully a bit of a surprise that Jesus says it's actually hard. Salvation is actually hard. But despite this warning that salvation is hard and to not take it for granted, there's still really beautiful truth in Jesus' words. I think the passage really divides itself between this idea that salvation is hard and the idea that salvation is surprising. Those are really the two, the two big sections. But in the middle, I think we want to pay attention to the hinge point. And this is really our second point, that salvation is possible. Jesus wants people to know that salvation is possible, so don't discount it. You see, there is a door, and the door is open. Did you notice the door is narrow, but all, all are invited in? And so it's a very subtle thing in our, in our story here, the transition from verse 23 to verse 24. You see, the question, it is posed by someone. My guess is that it is someone who's actually following Jesus. It's probably someone who would consider themselves his disciple. But who is the answer then given to? It's actually given to the crowd, to the them. That this narrow door is actually the invitation is given to all. It's one of the great ironies and potential tragedies of this section that while this someone is wondering if salvation will be all that effective, Jesus has already set his eyes and his feet towards Jerusalem. Can you imagine Jesus in this situation? Here he is preparing to open the door to give his life as a ransom for many. And what is the question he gets? Will there be few? Jesus, will this work of salvation, will this whole cross thing, will it really be all that effective? You see, the person's question is, is one of quantity and perhaps disappointment. But Jesus, is, his journey to the cross is one of possibility and even joy. You remember what the writer of Hebrews says. He says in chapter 12 that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. See, you see, the New Testament, it's clear that that narrow door, the single door, is in fact the Lord Jesus, that he is the one who makes the way open to God. And so going back to that picture of all of us facing death, if all of us were separated from God, living this way, Jesus came into a world where this was the reality. His community was full of people who had turned their back on God. Who were the many to Jesus? The many needing saved. But yet, as he put his face toward Jerusalem and he's prepared to actually pay the price himself, 
to die as those who are facing perishing. As he goes there, he begins to pay the price to open the door. And so salvation, it is possible that Jesus, he receives this question that has to be a little insensitive, and his response is not to uh, condemn, but his response is to invite. The door is open, and the time is now. You see, verse 25, it describes a day in the future when the door will be closed. From elsewhere in the Bible, we know when this day is. Individually, it's the day of our death, that God has ordained it for once to live and then to die and face the judgment. Corporately, kind of together, it's the day of Jesus' return. And so the time is not unlimited. We, of course, we know it. We need to know it with our physical lives, that the time is not unlimited. But we need to know it in our spiritual lives as well. But Jesus says, today, today is the day to strive, to agonize, to get in that door. You see, he's told us everything we need to do to enter. In chapter, earlier in chapter 13, he called it repentance. It's changing our minds. It's those neighborhood people who were close to the master but not yet in. They needed a change of mind to say, not my way in God's world, but God's way, turning back. And so this question of few and many, why would it prevent us from entering in? Well, perhaps it's that we would discount salvation. And Jesus says, how ashamed that would be. Think of the classic children's story, uh, a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It really illustrates the, the basic human obsession with giveaways and contests, right? And so the, the giveaway is, uh, I think it's just a day in the Chocolate Factory, and people buy tons and tons of candy bars looking for that golden ticket. The, da- the door is extremely narrow. Extremely narrow. But what do they do? They agonize to get in. You see, that's how we are with contests and giveaways and even lotteries. It doesn't matter how unlikely or how small the chance. You see, the potential win drives an eagerness. The possibility makes all the agonizing worth it. And so Jesus, he wants the crowd to know that salvation is possible. And so what's the application? Strive to enter. That there is no time for questions that are theoretical and speculative. Jesus makes the question very personal and practical. Have you entered? And because of this, these dynamics of salvation being hard yet possible, we'll see that salvation is surprising. Salvation is surprising. He wants people to know to not expect to figure it all out. And so really two big surprises in our passage. One is how close people can be to the ministry of Jesus and still refuse. And two, how far people can seem and still come in. Surprise number one, how close people can be and still refuse. Verse 26, the crowd will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Now, of course, in the original context, Jesus, he's talking to his fellow Israelites in in Israel and close to Jerusalem. And so in this case, he is imagining those people who were closest to him, who were close enough to share a meal and to hear his teaching. They're the people who had all the heritage. In verse 28, they're the ones who, who knew Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had all the potential, all the advantages, but yet Jesus, he calls them workers of evil. You see, it's a great surprise that those who would seem so close would refuse. 
You see, our danger is being close enough to know, but not be known. Do you notice that's the distinction that Jesus brings out? That this crowd, they say they know the master. But the master says, I don't know you. I don't know where you come from. You see, it's not about geographical proximity, but relational closeness. You see, it's not about geographical proximity, but relational closeness. That in repentance, in turning back, we're actually drawing near to Jesus so that he would know us and we would entrust ourselves to him. You know, in many ways, that's the picture of confession, and I really, really enjoyed how it came out in our confession this morning. In our confession, we ask God to have mercy on us and in great tenderness to wipe away our, our, our offenses. Extremely intimate picture to turn back and to say, God, you, you know me. You know the offenses I have, each one. Would you wipe them away? But then look at the assurance. God is slow to anger and full of compassion, forgiving all who humbly repent. Will few be saved? All who repent. There's a surprise that you can be so close in the neighborhood, in God's world, even in a place where Christianity is all around, perhaps even in his church. And yet when it comes to being known by Jesus, to trust him with your life and with your sin and with your future, to refuse. But surprise number two, how far people can be and still come. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, and people will come from east and west, from north and south, and they will recline at the table of the, in the kingdom of God. You see, those in the immediate neighborhood, they might have neglected and overlooked God's salvation. The door might be narrow, but yet it will be wide enough and close enough that people from all four corners of the earth will stream in. And notice that they stream in not to be second-class citizens, not to be those late to arrive, but they will enter to be at the master's table. We see this later in Luke when Jesus is talking to the thief on the cross and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. It's a, it's a picture of great intimacy, that those who are far will somehow not only come in, but come close. And Jesus says at the very end of our passage, be first. Some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. And so the two great surprises of the passage, that you can be so close and still refuse, how hard is it to be saved? Where geographic proximity would not be enough. But yet be so far to be brought in. Will there be few or many? You see, I think we finally have an extra surprise. An extra surprise in the passage that we have Jesus' heart for people to be saved. That even those who wonder whether his salvation will really be enough who might neglect it and overlook it, he says, strive to enter. Agonize to open, even as he would agonize to open the door. And even for those who would refuse, he wishes they would come. And so as we close, look at the next, next passage here. We're, we're not teaching the entire chapter, just the, the middle here and the beginning and now a little bit at the end. Um, Luke 31, 13, 31, right after this. At that very hour, some of the Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast down demons and perform curses today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. 
Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see the better question. The better question of whether there will be few is actually the question of Jesus' heart, that he would look at the city that will soon execute him, the city that he knows for the most part will eventually reject him, and what is his posture towards them? He would wish that they would be gathered in. And what is the problem? They were not willing. How hard it is but yet how open the narrow door is. And what a surprise that those who are even far away would go in and recline. And so not an answer, but I think the answer we need. And so what's the application? It's actually a much better application than if we were given a number. If we were given a number, it would actually be really difficult. We would fall back between either um, excitement and success or despair. But what is the application? Well, it's really strive and surprise. So will the number of people saved in Norwalk and Stanford be few? Probably the wrong question to ask. Instead, strive. Strive. You know, salvation is a hard thing. It's such a hard thing for us to walk around thinking, oh, God, couldn't you do more? Do we know how hard it is? but yet the door has been opened. Jesus has been lifted up, and he would gather all to himself. And so we strive to enter. We agonize for ourselves and for others. Isn't it interesting that often we're agonizing with the question of God's generosity rather than agonizing with the question of our neighbors entering in? So we strive, and we're surprised. And so we are prepared for the heartache of those who seem so close but yet refuse. It's the heartache that Jesus felt. But we're also prepared for the surprise of amazing stories who seem so far away, but yet come in. In reality, this is the case of every testimony. Just a couple weeks ago, our small group in Norwalk, we shared a little bit of how God has worked in our life. And it's amazing how every story has this storyline. Those who were far, who were brought in. The insider and the outsider, those who could neglect and those who would not know. But yet, in each story, there's this amazing truth that Jesus would open the door and bring them in. And so I wonder even if this morning after church, whether that might be a good application. To share the encouragement and the joy of how God brought you in. Of how God's heart for you through Jesus became known to where, despite all odds being turned away, facing death, prone to neglect. But yet, when Jesus would gather, you came. Well, let's pray that that will be the case for us and even more so in our communities. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for showing us your plan and your heart so clearly through the Lord Jesus. That even as Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, he went with the expectation that he would be forsaken and be lifted up. And once he would lift up, be lifted up, he would draw all to himself. 
And so, Father, would you free us of the dilemma of asking questions that would be unhelpful for us? Would you rescue us into the joy of seeing the reality that what is impossible with us, you have made possible? That through you and through the grace of the Lord Jesus, all who are far off could be brought in. And so would you free us to agonize with this great anticipation that we would be in and that those who are far would come in with us, that your table would be full, that a great multitude would be known to be in your new world. And so we eagerly await this, and we ask for the faith to work towards it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.